I want to invite you to turn your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Matthew, if you would. Matthew uh, chapter 13. Matthew uh, chapter 13. I'm going to be reading two different sections to prepare our hearts for our time together. I'm going to read verses 1 through 9 of chapter 13, followed by uh, verses 18 to 23. So beginning in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 13. That day, Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea, and large crowds gathered to him. So he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd was standing on the beach. And he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up. Others fell on the rocky places where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. Others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out, and others fell on the good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundred, some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear." Then in verse 18 to 23, our Lord explains the significance of this parable. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. The one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man, he hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. Let us pray. Father, again, we come before thee, and we we thank you so much that you are a prayer-hearing God. We thank you that your blessed Son continues to make intercession for us, and we come boldly to the throne of grace in these moments. I would again uh, ask for the, the help of your Holy Spirit during these, uh, these minutes together. I w- would pray for the assistance of your Holy Spirit to convey Holy Scripture, um, your Holy Word, in a way that is pleasing to thee, in a way that is um, true to your holy in, in, uh, intention. And I do pray for each one here also that you would enlighten their their minds and their hearts to um, apprehend your precious word. I, I pray the effect of being here would be not only glory for thyself, but for the good of our own souls. It would be a help to us in our own love for thee, our own walk with you. And so we just Pray for your continued blessing in our time together, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what I have read in your hearing this morning is one of the more probably well-known parables in the New Testament. It's The parable itself is found in verses 1 through 9, and then our Lord's explanation of the significance is in verses 18 to 23. Uh, the Bible is filled with parables, which are, are stories that are designed to illustrate moral and spiritual truth, and this 
parable um, and its explanation helps us to understand why it is that so many people are not saved. This parable it has more than one value, but one of the values, it helps us to understand why there are so many people that are not saved. Now, there are others, other texts of Scripture that speak to this issue and give us insight. Our Lord in the Sermon on the Mount says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And many are those who enter by it, for the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and few are those who find it. So our Lord's teaching in the Sermon on the Mount is um, that there are many on the broad road that leads to destruction, but there's only a few on the narrow road that leads to life. So that's it's a true and a tragic reality. A, a text that I didn't make it to last Lord's Day morning, more of a sobering text, it's from our Lord in Matthew 25, 46. Referring to the unrepentant, he says, These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This is our Lord's teaching on those who reject overtures of grace. They will go away into eternal punishment. So we might wonder uh, why anyone who hears the basic features of the gospel, and I would understand this is a basic feature of the gospel, um, that those who don't come to Christ will be subject to eternal punishment. Well, why would anyone hesitate at all? Why would they not immediately embrace Christ as Lord and Savior if this is presented to their minds? Well, our Lord's explanation here in verses 18 to 23 sheds great light on this particular issue. It gives us some insight into the, the dynamics that are operating in the mind of the unsaved. Uh, the soils represent different kinds of hearers. And the constant in each case is the word. The word stays the same. Um, but each kind of person um, hears the same word, but it has different results. So they respond in different ways. There are different kinds of soil. They denote different kinds of people, different sorts of hearers. And, and the first three, at least in my view, have reference to those who ultimately do not savingly receive the word. And then the fourth hearer, uh, the good soil, is the one who savingly embraces the word. So you have four classes of hearers here. There's the unresponsive hearer, the impulsive hearer, the distracted hearer, and the prepared hearer. And these different differing descriptions help us to understand the dynamics that are operating in the mind's when the gospel is conveyed to men and women, what is going on in, in their minds and, and why so many do not believe and why some do. So we'll just kind of take these in order and I hope it will be helpful to your own thinking process as it relates to this particular uh, issue. So in the first place, we have what could be called here the unresponsive hearer. It's the first of uh, three different classes of hearers that do not ultimately respond in a positive way to the gospel. So this is the unresponsive or the, or the careless hearer represents, I think, many in our culture. Those who, they just don't seem to care about the eternal condition of their soul. So here we're thinking of verses 18 and 19 of chapter 13. Hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one in whom seed was sown beside the road. And this is an explanation of verse 4 of chapter 13. As he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up. The, the words here, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom, Leon Morris writes, anyone, no matter who. So it's kind of a general designation. One writes that all of Jesus' seeds are good, so the emphasis is on the various types of soil. John Broadus elaborates in his work on Matthew. He says the idea of the parable is that the same word of truth produces various effects according to the way in which it is received. 
He says, no analogy between the physical and spiritual things can ever be perfect. The soil was not responsible if it was trampled or rocky or thorny, but men are accountable for hearing the word improperly and opening a way for the exhortation, take heed therefore how you hear. So we notice here that the gospel, in its most basic form, includes entrance into the kingdom. If you notice that, it the gospel, in its most basic form, includes entrance into the kingdom of God. This is a glorious kingdom because it's eternal. In 2 Peter 1.10, it says, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you'll never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. So it's an eternal kingdom, and full participation is what we anticipate and look forward to. In James 2.5, listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? It's glorious because it, it includes uh, deliverance from the realm of darkness to the realm of light. In Colossians 1.13, he delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. And then Paul describes the character of, the king, of this kingdom in Romans 14. The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And again, to quote Broadus, I think he summarizes the, the parable, parable very well. He says, the seed is the word of God or the word of the kingdom. And the soil is human hearts, so that reduced to a general law, the teaching of the parable is that the result of hearing the gospel always and everywhere depends on the condition of the heart of those to whom it is addressed. The character of the hearer determines the effect of the word upon him. And under, under this first heading about the unresponsive hearer, I would... Um, there are two factors that would further govern our thinking with respect to the, the careless or the unresponsive hearer. Number one, there's defective spiritual comprehension. There's defective spiritual comprehension. We're told that he or she doesn't understand it. Um, now, probably when you hear a phrase like, he or she doesn't understand it. We, we think of intellectual lim limitations. Somebody doesn't understand algebra or maybe a concept in science. But here, though the intellect is involved, it, it's comprehension of moral and spiritual things. It's understanding the, the dynamics of the gospel and understanding the being of God. In Romans 3, 10, and 11, Paul wrote, there is none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands there's none who seeks for God. Hodge comments here, this right apprehension of spirit or spiritual discernment of divine things is always attended with right affections and right conduct. He that understands seeks God, which latter expression includes all those exercises of desire, worship, and obedience, which are consequent on the spiritual discernment. So this failure to understand indicates not simply some kind of an intellectual barrier, but it's a moral rejection of the being of God. Men love darkness rather than light. Again, Broadus quotes another who suggested that in English as in Greek, we may express both the material and moral failure by one term, does not take it in. The people were hardened into indifference and some of them even into malignant opposition to the word. And I have this as kind of a sidelight here, maybe just pulling from the broader witness of Scripture. Um, this, this rejection, I believe, is based on the fact that the biblical gospel, it, it's always a humbling message. 
The gospel is always a humbling message because it always includes the reality of sin. And it's not just the fact that I have sinned or you have sinned or anybody has sinned. It's the fact that it is what we are. God be merciful to me, the sinner. So the biblical gospel, it's always humbling to the soul because it brings to the forefront of the discussion the reality of one's own sin. And also here, it's marked by indifference to the commands of God. Indifference to the commands of God, as William Hendrickson noted verse 19 speaks of the unresponsive, insensible, callous heart, the heart of the person who by persistent refusal to walk in the light has become accustomed to hardly even to listen to the message that is being proclaimed. Um, So this represents the person who's indifferent to the needs of their soul, very animated about other things, very animated maybe about politics or business or other subjects, but when it comes to their soul, they're not. Um, I'll just read to you from Luke chapter 12. I I think there's a good illustration of that here. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who appointed me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. He told them a parable, saying the land of a certain rich man was very productive. He began reasoning to himself, saying, What what shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? He said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I'll store all my grain and my goods. I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So the man represented here, the front burner issue is just the concerns of this issue, and he's indifferent, completely indifferent to things of eternal import. And I surmise, you've met people like that you've talked to them and 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 they're very animated and very engaged about earthly things transient things temporary things but they're very cavalier about their their soul in the world to come well the second factor here there is defective spiritual comprehension the second factor is is and i think this is is kind of a result of the first one there's effective spiritual opposition defective spiritual comprehension then there's effective spiritual opposition the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in the heart so two things stand out here about satan number one he's an evil being Um, it's hard to imagine anything more diabolical than thwarting the eternal salvation of a soul but that's what satan is like in second corinthians 4 even if our gospel is veiled it's veiled to those who are perishing in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And his activity here, it's marked by a kind of a spiritual violence. He snatches away what has been sown in the heart. The idea here is to take away suddenly and vehemently, or, or take away in the sense of steal or, or, or drag off. Uh, the same term is found in John chapter 10 and verse 12. He was a hireling and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, behold, holds the wolf coming he leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them so it fits in with the imagery of of satan prowling about like a roaring lion seeking someone to destroy so we need to pray for people like this when you when you meet someone that kind of fits this description we need to pray that the spirit of god would awaken their hearts to their own soul and awaken their hearts to the necessity of repentance and awaken their hearts to the reality of the world to come so 
Uh, This particular description of being unresponsive, I think, applies to many. Well, we notice, secondly, there is the impulsive hearer, the impulsive hearer. And here we're thinking of verses 20 and 21, the one on whom seed was sown in the rocky places. This is the, the man, he hears the word, immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. This is our Lord's explanation of verses 5 and 6. Others fell upon the rocky places where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they they withered away. Uh, The reason I'm calling it the the impulsive hearer is the repetition of the word immediately. Uh, It occurs once in verse 20, again in verse 21, immediately. Immediately they receive the word with joy, and then when affliction or persecution arises, immediately they fall away. Immediately they receive it with joy. Immediately they fall away. Um, now, when you and I hear of the first part of this, when you and I hear of this kind of a thing, we're, we're encouraged. Someone who receives the word with joy, when we hear that, well, we're encouraged because it's, this is the language of salvation, receiving Christ. It's the language of salvation. John 1, 12, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Or, or James 1, 21, therefore putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness and humility, receive the word implanted, which is a able to save your souls. And then the emotion of joy is associated with salvation. We read in, in Luke 15, there's, there's joy in heaven among the angels over a sinner that repents. However, we can make two observations which reveal that the, the impulsive hearer is not a truly saved person. They're not a truly converted person for two reasons at least. Number one, he has no root in himself. He has no root in himself. That's the description. J. Alexander says that there's not a principle of true religion. He writes, our Lord now applies to the class represented, namely those who have no root in themselves. That is a principle of true religion, including or implying faith, repentance, and the love of God producing an analogous external life. This shows in what sense Luke 8.13 describes them as believing for a while, professing or appearing to believe while really without the root of true conviction or conversion. So true conversion always involves a a spiritual transformation in the soul at a very deep level. There's always the the root, so to speak, of conversion. And the Bible is very expressive about this. One really good example, I think, is from Ezekiel chapter 36. Moreover, I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. That's the character of the converted person. But this one is is only temporary. They don't have a new heart. They don't have that principle of religion. There's no inclination of soul produced by the Spirit of God to persevere in the faith. So they're only temporary. Secondly, um, their defection real reveals their true spiritual condition. Their defection reveals their true spiritual condition. When affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. Um, affliction is the more general term here. It's the idea of pressure or distress. Uh, persecution is the more intense term. 
uh, the systematic hunting down of adherents of a particular religion to inflict pain or death upon them, especially to destroy the religion by destroying the adherents or by forcing the adherents to renounce their belief and, and, and fall away. It's, it's, really, it's really the idea of taking offense at something. Leon Morris is helpful. He says most translations say that he, he falls away, but there's something more than falling he or she takes a offense. That is to say, he comes to regard adherence to Christ as something of a trap. If it means persecution, he wants nothing to do with it. He is repelled. The time of trial means the end of this person's adherence to Christ. There are various forms of this. i got three examples in the New Testament. Uh, the first one, if you want to turn to chapter 19, it's the rich young ruler. It reads like this, beginning in verse 16 of chapter 19. Behold, one came to him and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do to obtain eternal life? Verse 17, he said to him, Why are you asking me about what is good? There's only one who is good. But if you wish to enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said, All these things I have kept, what am I still lacking? Jesus said, if you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieved, for he was one who owned much property. Now, I, I know he did not receive the word with great joy, although I, I think in our broader evangelical community, he probably would have received the word with joy, kind of under the rubric of easy believism, because when you, when you put the various passages together, th this young man was very respectful. Um, he ran ran up to the Lord, he knelt before him, he, and, and he asked, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? I think it would have been pretty easy to get him, well, just pray this prayer. Just to say, I take Jesus as my Savior, and I pledge to follow him. That, that would have been very easy. But, but he was unwilling to even obey one thing. He wouldn't obey the word of the Lord, so he went away grieved. Now, another example, this is kind of an overview from John chapter 6. Uh, it, just, it begins with the feeding of the 5,000. There's large crowds that are following Jesus and verse 14 says, When therefore the, the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, This is of a truth, the prophet who's come into the world. Jesus therefore perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Then verse 22 of John chapter 6, The next day the multitude that stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other small boat there except one, and that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat, and that his disciples had gone away alone. Then verse 24, When the multitude therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. So you can get kind of a visual here, all these people, kind of like an armada crossing over, to, to follow Jesus. So he, he has a massive, he's doing good at this point, has a massive following. The problem is he, there's teaching all the way through the rest of John chapter 6. That's where he runs into trouble. So you get to verse 64. But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. At verse 65, he was saying, this is, this is part of why they ended up um, not following him. For this reason, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. Then you get to verse 66. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. As Carson points out, the uh, uh, the offense they found, this is the offense they found in his word. Now, there's one more example that's a little bit more signal, I think, even than this one. I'm just reading here from Luke chapter 4. 
Jesus, referring to Jesus, he came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up. It was his custom. He entered the synagogue on the Sabbath, stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. He opened the book, found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. He closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. He began to say to them, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now verse 22 says, all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, is not, is not this Joseph's son? Well, then in verse 24, he said, true, same kind of a thing. Everything's going good, but he continues to teach. Verse 24, truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown, but I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months when a great famine came over all the land. And yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet. None of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Then you get to verse 28, all the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. J.C. Ryle writes, how bitterly human nature dislikes the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. But this is a, a radical shift of opinion, speaking well of him to being filled with rage as they heard these things. They were offended at the word. Now, in, in light of this, um, this is in the context of tribulation and persecution, so I thought just some helps in, in, in light of the fact that we are Christians. There's just two or three helps here. Number one, we need to realize that um, Acts 14, 22 says, through many tribulations, you shall enter the kingdom of God. That just goes with the territory. Tribulation goes with the territory of being a Christian. Uh, in, in 1 Thessalonians 3 and verse 3, Paul wrote, So that no man may be disturbed by these afflictions, for you, you, for you yourselves know we've been destined for this. You're predestined to eternal life, but Paul says you're destined to affliction at least some level. Just, it, just, it goes with the territory of being a Christian. But however, we also need to realize that this tribulation does produce Christ-like character and facilitates a, a, a true soul-sustaining hope. In Romans 5, Paul says not only this, we exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character hope. And, and also, that there's no level of tribulation or distress that can circumvent the reality of, of, of Christ's love for our souls. Romans 8.35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? And, and also, there's always a legitimate expectation of God's incomparable comfort in the midst of distress. In 2 Corinthians 1, 4, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any in, in affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. And, and also, often the joy of the Lord flourishes in the midst of persecution and tribulation. 2 Corinthians 8, 2, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. So we have, number one, the unresponsive hearer. Number two, there's the impulsive hearer. Number three, there is the distracted hearer. And, and here, verse 22 is an explanation of verse 7. Verse 7, others fell among the thorns. The thorns came and, and choked them out. And verse 22 says, this is our Lord's explanation of that. The one on whom seed was sown among the thorns. This is the man, he hears the word. 
And the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. Again, the unifying theme here is they hear the word. And, and, and this here, this is the third hearer, I could be understand as being maybe more responsible than the first two. Leon Morris says this is the only one who really listens to the word. He, he's no hard rejecter nor a man given to shallow enthusiasm. Uh, again, Broadus, I think, gives a good summary of what's going on here. Alas, how often men seem deeply stirred by the word of the gospel and perhaps resolve that they will give heed to the message, perhaps for a while seem diligently to do so. But worldly anxieties, especially about wealth and worldly desires and worldly pleasures, soon get complete possession of the mind and all the seeming good effect is gone, leaving the soul the very thicket of thorns. The, the term choke here. Um, it's to crowd together. It's used of plants whose food and light is it's cut off by by weeds. Can be defined as a, to inhibit the the excuse me to inhibit the action. It's the function or the function of developing something conceived of as choking someone to deprive them of, of life. And you can get a good visual there, choking someone to deprive them as life. There are two influences here which restrict or, or choke the effects of the word. Number one, the worry of the world the worry of the world, concern with the world, inordinate concern with the world. I, I got to this point. That's a challenge, isn't it? I mean, that's a challenge for all of us. That continues to be a challenge. And, and I'm just going to stop for a moment here and, and give you the cure. Here's the, here's the cure to the, this malady of being caught being with the worries of the world. And, and it's just to listen and do what Jesus said. That's all. And this is what Jesus said. For this reason I say to you, do not be anxious for your life as to what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor for your body as to what you shall put on. Is not life more than food and the body than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow, neither do they reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And which of you by being anxious can add a single cubit to lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory did not clothe himself like one of these. But if God so arrays the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more do so for you, O men of little faith? Do not. Jesus says, do not be anxious then, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or with what shall we clothe ourselves? For all these things the Gentiles eagerly seek. Your heavenly Father knows you have need of these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Therefore, do not be anxious for tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care of itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. We know that, right? Each day has enough trouble of its own. Second, the second distraction that sort of neutralizes the effects of the word is the deceitfulness of riches. It's, it's the worries of the world. And, and the second thing that neutralizes the effect of the word, it's the deceitfulness of riches, the, the seduction that comes with wealth. Uh, to deceive is to cause someone to believe what is not true. We talked about that a bit in Sunday school. Uh, so that he or she takes uh, the false as true. Uh, the unreal as existent, the spurious as genuine. There, there is a tendency to uh, ascribe to wealth a power that it does not have. Um, and, and so the challenge here is sin is deceitful and the enemy is deceitful and they kind of feed into this mindset. So again here, just a couple of helps against the deceitfulness of wealth for you and I as Christian believers. Number one is just replicate the prayer of Agur in um, Proverbs chapter 30. This is how he prayed. Two things I, I asked of thee, do not refuse me before I die. Keep deception and lies far from me. 
Give me neither poverty nor riches. That, that, that's his petition. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion. And here's his reasoning. Lest I be full and deny thee and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. So that, that's help number one. Help number two is just to heed the words of the Apostle Paul from 1 Timothy chapter 6. He says godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. We have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. That's a little bit discouraging in a way. You came with nothing, you leave with nothing. And and we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it, they've wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves through with many a pang. And here's the cure. Flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. So you have these three classes of the unsaved, I believe. They all hear the same word. But for different reasons, they don't receive it savingly. You have the unresponsive here, the impulsive here, the distracted here. Then in the fourth place, you have what I'm calling the prepared here or the prepared heart. Verse 23. And the one in whom seed was sown on the good soil. This is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundred, some sixty, and some thirty. So this, in contrast to the other, he understands, he or she understands the word, comprehends it. Um, And they bear fruit in this life as evidence of that. So three things here by way of conclusion. Number one, contrary to one who is temporary, the true believer perseveres in the faith and bears fruit. Contrary to the one who is temporary, the true believer, a truly saved person, perseveres in the faith and bear fruit. Um, Luke 8.15 says they bear fruit with perseverance. Tribulation doesn't stop them. Persecution doesn't stop them. The the true Christian perseveres and bears fruit because they have the principle of religion in their soul. Matthew 24, 12 says, Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he shall be saved. The one who endures to the end, he shall be saved. Revelation 14, 12. Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. They persevere in their faith until the end. They bear fruit until the end. Secondly, God always has a people. We learn here, God always has a people. Now it's true, most people are on the broad road that leads to destruction. And most are... um, are unresponsive to the overtures of grace and to the true gospel. And, and the fact of the matter is, most are, are, are swept away to, to hell by the interests of this world and the false promises of wealth. But God always has a people that persevere. Matthew Henry put it like this, Though there are many that receive the grace of God and the word of his grace in vain, yet God has a remnant by whom it is received to good purpose. For God's word shall not return empty. He refers to Isaiah 55, 11. So shall my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. And then thirdly, and this is just kind of a footnote by way of implication based on this repetition of the word, Um, our fidelity to the word is never a function of how it is received. 
Our fidelity to the word, it's never a function of how it is received. The character or the content of the word, it's never altered to gain an acceptance, a wider acceptance. These words are from Paul to Timothy as a preacher, but I think they have application to all of us. He says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and by his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience. And instruction. Here's the reason. The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate or pile up for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. They won't hear the truth. So the answer is not alter the word, change the word, water it down, but just continue to convey the truth. Loyalty to the word is never determined by how it is received. Um, it is rejected by most, that's the fact, but not by all. And God always has a people, and his word will not return void as he is pleased to apply it to their souls. Shall we pray? Father, we do thank you that you are a, a God who saves your people in your time, in your way. I pray that you would take these considerations and apply them to our own hearts. I would ask if there's anyone here who um, does not know you in a saving way, that you might just open their hearts to the great and glorious salvation that is found in your Son. We thank you so much that um, you, you call people to thyself. We thank you so much that you have a people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And we thank you that you will build your church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So I would ask that you would take what we have considered this morning and make appropriate application to our hearts for your honor and for your glory. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.